I'm Maria Bucher, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and musicians, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Slavenka Draculic, an internationally prominent journalist, essayist, and novelist. Born in Croatia, Draculic spent the emerging years of her career in Yugoslavia, writing for several journals and participating in the feminist movement and literary debates in Zagreb. During the 1990s, she made her mark on the international scene with two volumes of essays entitled How We Survived Communism and Even Laughed and Balkan Express, Fragments from the Other Side of the War. These publications were soon followed by an international bestseller, Café Europa, Life After Communism. Her crisp observations on the politics of everyday existence under communism and in wartime have made these books favorite selections for anyone teaching a course on life under authoritarian regimes. Her new book is called A Guided Tour Through the Museum of Communism. Slavenka, thank you for being here today. Thank you very much for inviting me. So when did you decide to become a writer? Or how? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I am one of those who who knew since the very so to say, beginning, when I started to read and write, I started to compose little poems. And uh, the, only inter- the only thing that always interested me is to be in bed with a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, was, uh, uh, I remember even going for the first time when I was seven years old to the uh, library and uh, the big stair, which probably wasn't so big, but uh, uh, I was climbing with my mother, and uh, I was about, um, yeah, it was in Zadar. I was about seven years old, and ever since I learned to go on my own, there was not so much traffic at that point, so I could go there and, uh, and take out endless books and just... Uh, and my mother, I remember, I think every mother says it to every child who likes to read, don't read so much, your eyes will be, will get bad, which is exactly what, <laughs> what happened, you know. But I never regretted it. So I, I knew, but being a woman, you know, being a woman, it's a difference. Because, um, I don't know, I got married, I had a child and a job and, and so on and so on. So I really actually did never come close until a certain point, didn't come close to write what I want. I was very close to it. Very, I was a journalist and author, writing essays and very. Uh, um, I mean, I didn't write news. I write uh, comments, stories, reportages, and so. But uh, it wasn't until my daughter was about fifteen years old that I felt okay. Now I can let her go. I can let myself go, and then start uh, uh, devote myself actually to to almost exclusively writing. Mm. What did you love to read when you were little and went to the library? Everything. I, don't, I mean, I remember everything from Quo Vadis by Hendrik Sienkiewicz. The bigger, the better, you know, till uh, Tolstoy. And, and probably when I was 15, 16, I read all these classics, you know, from from Dostoevsky to Proust mm-hmm. and back. And well, Proust, not so much, not all of it, I would say. <laughs> you know. so, but at a very, very early age. So, of course, it was a natural choice to study comparative li- literature, mm-hmm. uh, or what you call perhaps the world literature. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is what I studied in sociology as well. So my, you would say I majored in world literature. This is what you would say here, but we say differently. Uh, um, so it was just really very natural thing also to go somewhere where, you could, where your job would be to write something. You know? So always stick to, to words. That was like the 
also perhaps the easiest way out. What did I know? I didn't know anything else. You know, I, I didn't like mathematics. I didn't like uh, natural sciences. I didn't like sports. I didn't like uh, fashion. I didn't like... I wasn't interested in anything but in, in this kind of thing. So nerd, what you would say. Yeah. <laughs> but you said you also studied sociology. Yes, and it was, I find it very useful. It was uh, very much under the influence at that point of praxis people, of the uh, critic of uh, Marxism, and um, some of those uh, people were my professors. And uh, what sociology did for me is just opening uh, your eyes and, and uh, teaching you how to think. And uh, the combination of these two made me also not only a writer but also a journalist and uh, very sensitive to social issues. And and uh, so I I, um, I guess I, I became what you called, and it's not very fashionable to say engaged, you know, mm-hmm. engaged as a, as a, as a journalist, as a writer, which wasn't always easy, especially when we come to to these uh, women's issues. Because, as you know, uh, under what we call communism, and actually it's not communism, it's socialist uh, system with communists gov- governing uh, uh, the state. So there were, therefore, I think it became known as a communism in the West. Uh, women were uh, emancipated uh, by law. So you did not need to fight for emancipation because it was given to you. The equality was given to you. So, of course, the comment was, why do you struggle? What are you talking about? There is nothing to fight for. But, of course, it was because the patriarchal culture is patriarchal culture and much more in in, in these countries uh, uh, of of, uh, uh, Eastern Europe or in, at that time, Yugoslavia, indeed very strong. It was a big migration after the war. Eighty percent of uh, the people came from the villages. and pretty back- backwards in that term. So, I mean, until they adjust to the life in the cities and then also change their habits by going to work in the factory and so on. But their view of women remained pretty much uh, the same. You know, they were there to serve, although these poor women were all already working, all of them, you know. So it was um, many issues of um, domestic violence, perhaps, mm-hmm. that that we started to talk about in the early, uh, late uh, 70s and early 80s. We had a big conference in 79 uh, that also foreign uh, feminists of that time attended and uh, then started to work in small groups uh, discussing these issues that are, uh, we thought at that time and tried to hide in that sense uh, behind the subject and this is uh, non-political you know what could be political about domestic violence but of course it's political so and uh, I think we were the first uh, group uh, of women in the early 90s that, that started to work uh, to talk or to write in this way and as we were all already pretty established as professors or journalists or writers, we wrote in mainstream newspapers, which was very good. And uh, and therefore, of course, were attacked by the official organization of women of the Communist Party. It was a normal thing that they had their own organization for women. And so they were speaking about, uh, it was, you know, it was Yugoslavia, so they wouldn't put you in prison. But they were saying that um, at that point in declaring that what we are importing is a bourgeois values from the Western world. And still, this was not very well regarded. Uh, uh, it was mostly phraseology. But, uh, mm-hmm. but actually, you couldn't, for example, be registered 
as a part of a sociological uh, society and, and then had a, a room within the, 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 the space within the association and uh, held uh, once uh, a month big m- meetings or I don't know, 100 people or 50 mm-hmm. people or 20 people, mm-hmm. it depends, and discuss different subjects. Mm-hmm. But to register as a, a civil rights organization or something, what, what you, perhaps, you, you, of course, you can do it now, but then it was not. Uh, possible, and then started to write a lot, and then I, and '84, I published a book which wasn't translated mainly because I didn't want it to be translated. Maybe that's a mistake. And the title was um, "Mortal Sins of Feminism," which were, was a collection of my feminist articles at that time. So, um, uh, but it is a kind of document. It's uh, it's nice to have it. However, I didn't continue to be very much uh, activist because I guess I'm not a very activist type. But this spread in in the 80s. Uh, there were many groups all over Yugoslavia, all connected, working together. Uh, they also continued to work together during the war. And uh, from this seed, somehow the groups grow, the consciousness grow, uh, grew, and uh, also some publications, some some activity, women's studies, and so on. And it all started in actually 1979. Uh, we became. I remember coming to a conference in uh, Long Island in. Uh, 1983 for the first mm-hmm. time ever in America and uh, this was Robin Morgan organization mm-hmm. of Sister Good is Global this mm-hmm. big huge international conference and uh, then uh, we participated in this uh, I think two books where Sister Good uh, is Global I, there, I, there's have a text I think and and then I was much more present in the States um, uh, I collaborated from 86 with the nation and and then in the 90s the war started so it was for me very difficult to, to write in my own country so I actually in the next 10 years published mostly abroad. Let me go back to the late 70s and 80s and your relationship with the feminist movement internationally. A lot of um, feminists from Eastern Europe that I've talked to or read um, have a kind of a, a love-hate relationship with with feminists from the West. Uh, uh, they seem a lot of them seem to be uh, saying that the West doesn't understand the context that that women from communist Eastern Europe come from, and therefore um, cannot really fully comprehend the meaning of uh, the kind of uh, both uh, discourse and actions that that feminists from Eastern Europe try to to uh, to. Uh, but but I think that it really was true. You know, I I don't think that you can understand. It's like today these journalists who are parachuted in. In, I don't know, in Libya, I don't know anything about Libya and had to report about that. It was the same thing, like, you know, parachuting feminists uh, in the Eastern Europe or Russia or something, mm-hmm. where they don't understand or they still did not at that time understood the context, you know. It's very difficult to understand that women are equal, that they are emancipated uh, formally, but not in in a real life, that there are many problems to, to solve. And so I also wrote a, a, a story about that. In I think it was in the book "How We Fight Communism," when the mm-hmm. a Western communist is talk, um, a feminist is talking to me and uh, asking me about uh, what do we prefer, discuss what kind of feminist theory. And there was no feminist theory at that point whatsoever in our country. We thought that we were heroes and very revolutionary for addressing certain subjects that were not publicly publicly addressed. 
But uh, there was a misunderstanding uh, inevitably at the beginning. But then, I think, uh, as the time passed, uh, we came closer to understand each other much, uh, much better. And uh, on the part of feminism from, from Eastern Europe, you know, the, at this very first meeting in 79, it was kind of funny because uh, we as Eastern European feminists, we were all dressed very fancy <laughs> in our best with high heel shoes and with makeup and I don't know what was uh, tight skirts, you know, just really and very proud because it was not so very easy to get uh, good lipstick, good shoes, good, you know, good dresses and so And women who came from the West... Uh, they they looked like uh, I don't know they were very what should I say nonchalant in their dressing they didn't mind uh, they they were I wouldn't say unwashed hair or without makeup or in some undescribable clothes but they just didn't really care and this was the position and this was a political statement we are not objects and they saw us as objects you know at that point. And this was a big misunderstanding, you know. They were reproached us for wearing high heel shoes. And in order to get these high heel shoes, you have to save a lot of money and go to a special place and, and so on and so on. So, and, and so this kind, from this very, very small misunderstanding, you know, it came to, to understand that, that we are not really, uh, th- there is no real understanding. But of course, you had to work. On that, you have to understand the society, you have to understand the law, you have to understand our kind of patriarchate, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, yes, voting, yes, but what does voting I mean? Uh, right to vote in a communist country? Um, employment, of course, uh, uh, education, this was the best part of it, of course. But, for example, for a long time, when you would, um, there was in the newspapers ads for, for new jobs, you know, when they were looking, uh, they were lo- looking for people, um, they would say in parentheses f-, f or M, female or mm. or, or male, and that was uh, that was the thing that we fought against, and we succeeded. The law was changed. So, but it it doesn't look uh, something spectacular, spectacular, but it was very very important. Then also feminist interpretation of books, of literature, uh, of some events. You we could uh, comment and. I suppose for them it wasn't a big deal, you know, because um, I guess uh, they expected more. But we didn't have books also. It was very hard to, for books to come by. And, of course, only in the foreign languages so until we got these books. It's not by coincidence that the first group of uh, women who started to deal with these women issues, women's issues were, uh, was a group of professors and students from the philosophical faculty in Zagreb and Belgrade and especially in Zagreb who studied sociology and philosophy and who read books, who, you know, traveled and got some books and read it and somehow were a little bit more in that respect educated because uh, in the newspapers you couldn't find a single thing. You could only find this uh, idiotic uh, bra-burning uh, nonsense. No? So this was the only information you get about um, uh, about feminism in, in America, for example. Then when I came he- here to the States, I met all these very important women from Gloria Steinem, who is even today my my great friend, to, of course, Robin Morgan. 
and almost uh, Betty Friedan and all, all, I, I personally interviewed them, made a, made a great effort to promote uh, them in uh, in our country and and uh, stayed uh, connected to American feminism pretty much, but not in an activist way, as I as I say. As a journalist, um, was it hard to break in as a woman? Uh, was there? Did you have specific sort of uh, obstacles or issues to deal with? Were there certain types of topics you were expected, or, or on the contrary, you know, forbidden from maybe engaging with a, from a gender perspective, or not? Well, from my point of view, I personally didn't didn't have any problem because I knew what I wanted, and this is exactly what I got. And I was, uh, I, I wrote what I wanted to write. Mm. I was a columnist and I wrote reports that I wanted to write. I commented about women and mostly about culture because commenting about culture was always in such countries way to send out political messages. You know, there is no division between culture and politics in a communist country, but this is how you go around about but uh, the truth is that most of the, uh, first of all, all chief editors were men. Uh, and, of course, you had to be, it was mandatory to be the member of the party. And uh, very few commentators were women, uh, but there were women. Mm. So I would say that mostly women did not go into direct political, uh, what you call internal politics. And there were foreign politics, culture, and other less important issues. But this is not because they were forbidden from that, but because journalism was also the mirror of the society, so more important jobs were given to, so to say, the boys, and, and the girls were you know, into this less important, uh, less important, but more fun. And so, <laughs> and so there were uh, there were not many women, but in, in my generation, uh, there were very very many women in journalism, and in my opinion, they were the best, and they are still. A big part of them is still writing. And when I compare journalism of that time with journalism today, I, I, you know, I, I, there is no comparison. My generation at that time, and we are, say, speaking about mid-80s, in terms of quality of writing, in terms of literacy, <laughs> journalist literacy, mm-hmm. in terms of even freedom of expression mm-hmm. in Yugoslavia at that time, uh, versus now. It, it was better. Mm-hmm. It's worse now, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is not a sentimentalist view. Uh, it's not uh, the view of somebody who uh, cannot uh, write today in the papers. Or something. It is a view of somebody who does not want to write today in the, in the newspapers in my country. Yeah. Because I very rarely write something and I, and I don't want to write uh, surrounded uh, by that context because it's uh, uh, basically there are no uh, news. It's only infotainment, you know, so it's only information that has to entertain it. And politics is also uh, falls into this uh, infotainment category. So I, I just don't think that I that there is, um, I don't want to take part in it. Yeah? So what happened with the feminist movement then let's say in the 1990s because the you sisterhood between, no, in, in Yugoslavia um, the conversation groups and the kind of networks that existed between Zagreb and Belgrade, let's say? Well, I think there were ruptures because of the war, you know, and this is inevitable because simple communication was not possible. But as far as I know, the women communicated as much as they could at that time. Uh, But, you know, it was only not only the war, but the entire 
everything had changed. You know, and the, uh, uh, it was a big political change, so-called or uh, velvet revolution. So the political system had changed, and the economic system had changed. So after all that, I think um, the situation for women became not only for feminist groups. There are many. I was, for example, traveling at the beginning of the 90s in Poland, and at that time they started to it. I mean, it was, it was a big scene, you know. And, and when in '83, I met Anna Titkova, a sociologist from uh, Warsaw, who came to this first meeting of Sisterhood is Global. There was, there, there were no women who were engaged in that, and of course she was ridiculed for her work as well as all of us were. But I mean, uh, already in a couple of years, ten years later, there were a lot of women groups. Uh, I, I personally helped uh, forming uh, one group of uh, uh, American and uh, Eastern European women uh, and that later on focused on the change of war with Ernst Nitto and... The such, Women uh, East-West Network. Yes, exactly. Yes. And I thought it was a good initiative yes. at that point but because of these misunderstandings that were kind of um, uh, bothering us at the beginning. But what happened there is another thing. It was such a big social and, and a political and economic change that um, I think uh, a, certain, a certain paradox happened that women, first you, you are emancipated by law and you don't need to worry about that. So there are problems, but you know, we are working on it. But now there was no more guarantees. Some countries kept uh, laws as they were or changed them very little. But some countries started to change the law. For example, Poland did the abortion law. That was a, that was a typical thing. And a typical example that women's rights are never won, that you always, always, always have to go back and have to fight because it's ne there are never guarantees. So paradoxically, women of my daughter's generation that is your generation, are in position to be very uh, observant and very careful watching that something doesn't change because it might, and while I was emancipated by law. What does it mean? It means that this new generation of women has to start from, uh, what is it called, grassroots. Mm -hmm. There was no movement, I would say, in Yugoslavia or nowhere in Eastern Europe, but there, there was awareness. You know? And... Uh, it was maybe bad that we were emancipated by law, but I think that in no other way it, it could have worked mm. at, at all at that point. However, now we are, uh, I'm afraid that we are, or that women are uh, in that respect at loss. So they have to be careful that they don't uh, find themselves in situation which I call emancipation after emancipation. That is, uh, after their mothers and grandmothers have been emancipated, that they have to fight for the same kind of emancipation. I think it's very paradoxical, but the women have to be aware of that and very careful about it. And that's the difference. And I would say not just in post-socialist Eastern Europe. That, that could be said about this country as well, to some extent, and that we're still reinventing and having to not take for granted any, yes, anything. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Even yeah. though Hillary Clinton's doing great things out there in the State Department, and for women also, but it's not, nothing's um, necessarily permanent, and, and there's been steps back and not just steps forward as but well. But there's historical situation when, when, when of course, uh, we can make step back and... Uh, and, and it, not always forward because, you know, I mean, you deal with that, but the body of woman is not only her own. It's always 
politicized. It always belongs to the state too. So the, if the state needs uh, more people, it will force you uh, not to choose to get rid of the fetus, but it will force you to give birth, stimulate to give birth, and so on and so on. So the politics of uh, women's body, I mean, they're better experts on, on that <laughs> than I am. Although I write my books, but it's... Uh, on the on on the body about the body of of uh, a woman but or a women but not uh, from that perspective. Your first selection for our uh, music today is Bob Dylan's "Blowing in the Wind." Can you say just a few words about why you picked Bob Dylan and uh, maybe Leonard Cohen? Uh, it's a very sentimental uh, reason because uh, at that time it was so very hard to get this. Um, long play uh, discs <laughs> right and music from abroad and and i heard him very early and his um, his songs and uh, somehow we played a lot uh, some 40 years ago as <laughs> as well as as leonard cohen this was the music that somehow was um, for my generation very important uh, connected to peace to hippies to different views to rebellion to many things uh, so it's not for my generation it's not rock and roll that was uh, so important as this kind of uh, uh, music connected to 68th generation mm-hmm. how many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Isn't how many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Let me fast forward from the late 60s to the 90s. Um, you left Croatia in the 90s. I did never leave Croatia, but when you, when you disappear from public life, then mm. the, pres- the, the, the perception is that you have left. I had some political, uh, what should I say, it was a time of nationalism, and I was critical of nationalism, to put it really in a nutshell. So writing against nationalism makes you enemy, makes you traitor, makes you this and makes you that. Mm. And therefore, it was when our paper, our weekly paper, Danas Today, which was very successful, was taken over by the loyalists, by, so to say, journalist loyalists to, to the new president, Tujman. Then uh, we had to leave. We started uh, a new magazine. It didn't work. We ended up with unemployment office, and we had to go, each of us, to find some other job. 
At that time, I was collaborating with many foreign papers, and, and I was writing for foreign press. So that was it. And by coincidence, I met my uh, husband, who is a Swedish he was a Swedish correspondent for Svenska Dagblad, and then we lived in between Croatia and Sweden. So I guess writing for abroad, uh, writing for foreign papers, not being present in the country all the time makes uh, gives that impression about mm. you. Of course, there are many details about why, how, uh, what happened, what did I write, what did they, they didn't like about my writing, how my colleagues uh, betrayed not only me, but many of us who did not agree with what, with the, with the, um, so you had ended up also with the etiquette, with the, what is it called? The label. Label of uh, dissident. And mm. my defense was always that the democratic regime, if, the, if it is democracy, it doesn't produce dissidents, but only people of a different opinion. If it is a regime, if it is authoritarian regime, okay, then it produces dissidents. So, I mean, it's up to them to decide what they are. But I think it's uh, it's a, it's another story. It's a very long and complicated story about what happened, how media, intellectuals, and uh, and academics instigated nationalism and the war, and supported wholeheartedly. Uh, 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 the politics of war at the beginning of nineties, and in a way, your story is that you were not part of that. No, I didn't group, want to be part so of that. You yeah, became yes, marginalized. Exactly, but it's not only me. It was of there course. were other people, and Dubrovka Ugrešić. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, there were many people. There were well, not so many, but there were intellectuals who left, writers who left. Uh, Predrag Matvejevic, Borac Osić. I mean, there mm-hmm. were people who didn't want to play along with. Uh, with uh, this nationalist politics, and you always have to pri- you ha- always have a choice, but you always have a price to pay. So. During that period, you wrote uh, a number of books uh, that have been internationally acclaimed, and so I, I wonder how uh, were they received in your in your homeland in Croatia? Yeah, at that time something happened that I, I realized that I'm not going to be able to publish these books in mm. in Croatia, and uh, so. Uh, there was uh, only a very small, tiny publishing house called Feral Tribune, and uh, together with the, with the magazine that was a weekly mm-hmm. magazine, which was, you know, the, the light uh, uh, at the end of the tunnel. This was the only alternative paper, uh, very satirical and very, very important for the sanity of, of the mind of people. It uh, um, unfortunately ceased to exist a couple of years ago. So this was the the only bright light, you know, in that country, and they published, I think, only collection of my stories or something. But mostly, I actually published abroad and in English, because my editors. I was convinced that I'm not going to publish it in Croatia. So my editors told me, "Well, okay, your English, you know, we'll edit it. Don't worry, just write." So this this is how I because I. From the, the second part of the 60s, writing for the nation, I wrote in English. Mm-hmm. And um, these editors, the American editors, never even thought that I would write the book in Croatian. <laughs> and, and I, yeah, I said yes. And so, and so it continues. So all my nonfiction books are in English, even today, because you never know what will, is it going to be published in my language or not. And I kept that. I don't know, maybe it's not a good decision, but this is how it is now. And the novels are written in, in Croatian, mm. so it's uh, as simple as that. Mm, so you write with two voices. Yeah, way. and, and um, yeah, 
sometimes I feel that they are different, but people say no, they are not so different. And uh, although the topics are so very, very uh, different, no. Yeah. yeah. During uh, the wars and the 1990s, um, you had a chance to observe a great deal of the violence and havoc going on in Yugoslavia. And uh, one of the things that came out of it uh, was uh, the novel S, which has a complicated story. Uh, can you tell me how you came about to write it the way that it turned out? Yeah. At the beginning of the war in Bosnia in, in um, 1992, um, it turned out, uh, I don't know, after maybe half a year or so, women so started to arrive from the camps. And we suddenly realized that, and they started to arrive to Croatia. So we started to realize that these women were raped, and, and in mass numbers. Why? Because it was, they started to talk. And that was a fantastic thing. The world press was there. They were watching, uh, observing, and corresponding uh, from, from Bosnia, but they were mostly stationed in Zagreb and, or in Croatia. And so when these women started to, as refugees, I mean, refugees from the camp started to have men too and uh, they started to talk and and it was a fantastic thing because then it became evident what is happening there that it was a, a, a rape on mass scale and uh, at that time we didn't know how many but i mean it was uh, uh, after many years it was established that the number is some somewhere between 30 and 60000 and mostly muslim women uh, raped by uh, by the Serbian paramilitary or military, but of course it doesn't mean that uh, it di the same didn't happen with Croatian women or or Serbian. women. that is that the Croatian and and Muslim um, you know, soldiers did not rape uh, women as well. But this was the majority, and so uh, it was to that extent that um, that it became really. Um, uh, uh, worrisome. How, how come that on such a big scale? Because in every war you have rapes, but to that extent and with such a... It, it was something fishy about that. So then the co documents were collected. I myself also do collected some in, in documents and uh, went to, in these camps and talked to women and wrote uh, reportages, interviews, and so on and so on. And at a certain point I thought, well, it's maybe good to collect these documents, um, their witnessing accounts, and publish them as a book. And so I did, and um, but rereading them, I found that it is there is something strange because it's so very. Their statements were without any. They were rather cold, uh, very factual, uh, very detailed, but they never spoke about their feelings. And it was in that sense, it was very repetitive because we understood everything about circumstances, but nothing about themselves. And uh, then we decided, uh, um, I decided with my publisher that this is not uh, something that you can publish for the reason that you will not get the result that you want. And the result of, was the empathy of, uh, of a reader. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, um, there were collections of these uh, documents and many, um, and very much discussed in the press and the lawyers in the world engaged about that and so on and so on, with the result that in 2001 the law international law it was uh, and one uh, a new law was brought up and this is um, the law that in uh, that it is um, if you commit a rape during the war time it is then um, a crime against humanity and this was the first three men from Focha who were sentenced at ICTY 
an international tribunal for former, criminal tribunal for former Yugoslavia in 2002, in February 2002, they got sentences based on this new law, which is now uh, there and uh, very helpful. And I think this is uh, one of the, if, if we can say so, it's maybe even not to express it in this way, but this came out as one of the results of this mass rate. So my my personal case is so that I left these documents not knowing what exactly to do with them because I thought in this way, presented in this way, they will mean nothing. Uh, as a journalist, I couldn't go further because also I couldn't move a reader any longer. And after a while, I realized what was missing with this document is um, our emotions. And then I thought that perhaps my task as a writer would be to continue where, where they stopped. So where they fell silent because they couldn't express their emotions because it's impossible for any victim to express emotions because they have to go through them. Then again, um, I tried to, as a writer, to imagine what they must have felt and uh, reconstructed their feelings, so to say. So everything in the book, as that you mentioned, as or a novel about the Balkans, is true in the sense that every detail happened to somebody. But the main character is a woman who is composed of many women, so to say, because I thought one, if you, if you make up one uh, strong character of a woman uh, to represent them in a way, you will, you will somehow make her more alive and more dramatic, her story more dramatic so that it can reach the reader. And this is really what happened. This fictionalized a story based on documents uh, was much more successful than the, in the, than these uh, collections of, of essays. Um, and at, at the end, this, uh, a, a young um, Irish director, <clears throat> a woman called Juanita Wilson, uh, made recently last year a film with the, with the same title, but in English version, in British version, the the book had the title as if I as if I'm not there, and this is the original title mm-hmm. in, in uh, my title also. So the film was made, and and um, to my mind, uh, very what should I say artistically, uh, without any sensationalism, with any romanticizing, because it's difficult to make such a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the the result of of of, of that struggle, I would say. In the novel, you you do an, in my view, a wonderful job of combining this interior dialogue of the main character, weaving that in through the narrative, and to me that re- reads like a wonderful way of representing trauma. Um, is that how you thought of it, as, as sort of being able to um, bring out this kind of embattled and never quite resolved uh, struggle and pain that, that uh, well, it's, you Well, uh, it's what I thought at the time about the technique to do it. I don't really know any longer, <laughs> but I thought somehow there must be a way to to exactly reconstruct that their thoughts, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I did quite some extensive research in terms of reading also about trauma and about uh, victims and so on and came to the conclusion that this is the, the way that works for me. You know? and, um, uh, and this is how I did it. So obviously people tell me that uh, it's uh, they're quite, when you read that book, you remain under a very strong impression. But... Uh, if that is so, then I think it's absolutely, absolutely fine. This is what I, <laughs> what I wanted to do. Yeah. 
Your more recent project is a book of eight stories um, entitled A Guided Tour Through the Museum of Communism, Fables from a Mouse, a Parrot, a Bear, a Cat, a Mole, a Pig, a Dog, and a Raven. <laughs> How yeah. did you end up with this menagerie? <laughs> yes, I am a zookeeper now, you see. <laughs> I have my little zoo and take, I'm taking it around here in America. The book, yes, I, you, you might as well say, why communism again, for Christ's sake, mm. is dead for 20 years now, <laughs> you know, so who cares? But that is my point, because I thought, well, yeah, it may be so, but it still deserves to, to, to um, some basics to, to remain, you know, for people to, to know, to remember. Because what I have noticed is that the whole new generation grew up ever since the collapse of communism, so somebody who is born in 1989 is 23 today. And I remember what was my attitude to history, to what happened before my birth, like Second World War. I thought, oh, my God, this is some ancient stuff. I don't want to know anything about it. Who cares? But uh, this is um, – I've noticed this attitude in the young people too, you know. So, for example, they did um, – in uh, high schools in, in Prague, they did – some kind of opinion poll asking about communism, and most of them, 70%, didn't have a clue. Uh, and that became an interesting topic because, you know, it's one thing not to know anything about communism in America, but in Prague, uh, you know, <laughs> your parents can tell you if they want. However, the parents didn't want to tell them. <laughs> uh, and uh, we do have this uh, in us to to try to repress, to try to forget. And, uh, it's all, okay, let's go further. Also, because we were participating, taking part in this. We were collaborating, I think. Uh, uh, you can also say that, that all of us were practically collaborators. I mean, we were forced into that. But, and therefore I thought, well, let's take it from another, from another angle that is more entertaining and still telling the, telling the story. And therefore the, uh, I wrote this book, which is meant for younger people. And, and I gave some of these stories to read to younger people, and they liked it. So I thought, maybe this is the approach. Maybe this will make them, um, you know, to reach out and, and then read uh, real uh, history books and so on and so on. But basically, each each animal is telling the story about one country. For example, for example this guided tour is in a real museum in Prague. It's, there is a museum of communism in Prague, and I'm sure there is a mouse there. <laughs> well, I named him Bohumil. Maybe he has another name. But I took Bohumil around to show to a reader what, what, what is in that museum. Not that there is any ma much in that museum, but that's also the point, because what do you exhibit of communism? So um, Bohumil is telling that story. and then. But I also tried not to be boring in, in, in terms that I wanted every animal to address us in a different mm -hmm. uh, literary form. So, for example, there is a cat, a cat, a Polish cat for Poland, who is writing a letter to the public attorney about the case of General, presumably General Jaruzelski, who is on trial now. So this cat is his cat. And uh, somebody asked me, well, does General Jaruzelski has a cat? I have no clue if he has a cat or not. <laughs> I invented the cat for him. So... <laughs> So she's writing. And then there is um, Miss Piggy, uh, Margolica Pig, who is writing a cookbook and she is representing. She is uh, doing a Hungarian cookbook. And actually in, in my book, we have introduction to her cookbook, which I don't know if it's going to see the world once <laughs> or not. But uh, there is this um, cookbook. Uh, and then there is um, 
Tosho Dancing Bear from, from Bulgaria, who is telling his story about Todor Zhivkov and his daughter. There is Koki, a parrot, who really is a parrot and who really lives in Brioni and who really was Tito's parrot. And uh, Tito died, but the parrots, as you know, parrot, parrot, parrots live long. And I saw him. And I, I didn't demand audition, so he didn't even look at me. <laughs> and my daughter said, well, next time you should uh, demand audition with him, which, you know, would be much better. Ask for an interview. <laughs> but anyway, I imag- in my imagination, I asked for an interview, and he t- told me a lot of interesting <laughs> details about uh, Tito with Elizabeth Taylor, with Sophia Loren, and all this gl- glamorous life of of him and about personality cult, which, mm-hmm. which is also very interesting. And so we have other animals who are, you know, in, in different ways. Um, there is a diary of... of, um, of um, actually, it's not a, a raven telling the story, but it's, a, it's a, somebody telling a story right. about the raven. Or be- somebody named raven. Uh, or somebody named raven. Uh, we don't know. It's a <laughs> very mysterious Albanian story, but it's in the form of a diary, more or less. And... Um, and the mole, who is a very, whom I very like very much, because mole is a, is an academic. He is a scientist. He is a, a archaeologist and anthropologist, and he is giving a lecture um, about the Berlin Wall. And this is uh, the part that I'm going to read <laughs> tonight <laughs> because I I like this um, presumed um, um, academic. But I have to say, I had an immense uh, fun writing this this <laughs> book, and I hope the readers will feel it and. And just from there, you know, you can you can go on, you can build on. If you have to give, let me put it this way, uh, to a professor of history <laughs> that you are, if you have to start uh, explaining communism to to the undergrads or something, I think this is the way to to give them this, and then they they get some some grip on on the on the problem, and then from there you build uh, uh, serious. And the other point was that I shouldn't forget is that. Uh, we always, I, I imagine in the West, you see Eastern Europe as a block. And finally, it's no longer a block. These are individual countries with individual histories and with individual kinds of communism. And perhaps it's, uh, it's a time to learn that as well. Well, uh, speaking of uh, some of these um, entertaining and marvelous details that you have in the book, um, I wonder if you would read a brief passage from Miss Piggy. Uh, uh, from Miss Piggy, okay. <laughs> Miss Piggy, she's also one of my favorites. It's very difficult to decide who is most favorite, you know. <laughs> it's like having so many children and you can't decide, really. Social scientists today know that there is, of course, a modern approach to the national identity issue. From this point of view, any national identity, rather than something God-given, is a social construct. It means something created perhaps like goulash, as opposed to something God-given, like paprika. Paprika is, well, paprika. But goulash changes constantly, as does national identity, composed of many more elements than than a nationality, a language, a history, or tradition. To such an extent that it is nowadays called a multiply identity. In the context of this cookbook, I, must, I myself would name it a sandwich identity. For example, I'm of, a Hunga- of Hungarian origin, but I have dual citizenship. And my loyalties are never in conflict except during the World Cup, uh, Cup in Saucer when I tend to root for the Hungarian team. She lives in Great Britain, in London, this big. 
and she is advisor on a, in a TV program on cooking. I just need to say that. Yeah. But she couldn't find job, also typical. <laughs> my individual identity, my family identity as Mangalitsa pig, followed by my local, regional, national, and European identities are not in conflict. Rather than only through national belonging and national food, I define myself through my other interests, like my feminism, club membership, love of travel and swimming, and so on. That's um, a wonderful way for me to segue into asking you um, in terms of identity, um, which obviously is fluid and complex, and interest at defining one's identity. Um, where do you see yourself floating to or moving to now? What are your interests um, at the moment? I, I write both fiction and non-fiction, and it's always... Um, I don't know, I spent so much time writing this book and researching for it, and as I said, I had great fun. Then I feel that I neglected my other interest, which is I wrote several books on the issue of female body and how it changes and what happens to it, and and uh, it's always in the, in the, the core of my uh, fiction writing. So what I'm now doing is I'm kind of... I will probably... The next book will be probably some some fiction work on, on that same same issue. But it's very early to, to really say anything. And in the meantime, it's always a lot of things happen in the world, and so I'm you know, following it and trying to comment on it. Although I have to say that for kind of journalism that I do, uh, there is very little space uh, anywhere in the world. This is Profiles from WFIU. We've been speaking with journalist and novelist Slavenka Drakulic. Slavenka, thank you for being with us. Thank you so very much. We're going to go out with Suzanne by Leonard Cohen. This is Maria Bucher for Profiles. Thank you for listening. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river. You can hear the boats go by You can spend the night beside her And you know that she's half crazy But that's why you want to be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her That you have no love to give her Then she gets you And she lets the river answer That you've always been her lover And you want to travel with her The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. 
Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.